Hello and welcome to this book club of the Lotus Eaters. I'm your host Harry, joined by Carl. Hello. And today we're going to be taking a look at Julius Evola, Evola, uh, Julius Evola's Fascism as Viewed from the Right, a work that I believe was written in the 1960s, very much post-World War II, where Evola was looking back and reflecting on the state of Italian fascism, which he, I believe, was relatively involved in. Certainly he had personal communications with Mussolini while it was going on. And during the Second World War, there's a note in there that refers to him being flown out to one of the Axis strongholds where Mussolini and Hitler were being held at at the same time during the war proceedings. So he seemed to have quite a lot of depth and insight and personal involvement in this to be able to draw back on. He was never allowed to be a member of the fascist party. While he uh, visited Germany on a speaking tour, he was surveilled by the Nazis. This does view- not surprise me. They viewed, they viewed him to be a subversive element. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, certainly within this book itself, Evola has some rather piercing criticisms of fascism because mm. a lot of people do consider Evola to be fascist adjacent or if not just an out-and-out fascist himself. And I think it's pretty clear through reading this, not only his criticisms of fascism, but also his ideas that he puts forward in here for the ideal state, as he conceptualized it, a traditional right-wing state, that he was not a fascist. No, He's, no. He was very much a traditionalist. He was, or in, if anything, a monarchist by the, se- yeah, by, the a, by the looks of it. He's an aristocrat, so he expected a monarchical state. Makes perfect yeah. sense. Yes, and uh, this is the first bit of Evola's writing that I have ever read. And I found it to be very interesting. I found it to be very clear, uh, which is somewhat counter to what I've been told about Evola's other writings. Now, you have read Revolt Against the Modern World in the past, which I believe there's probably about 20 to 30 years of separation between when he wrote that and when he wrote this, certainly when he was going through and revising the second edition of this in 1970. What sorts of differences did you find in this? Because... Was it any more any clearer to understand? Was it, had his views changed at all? Just curious. Well, no, his views hadn't changed. He's he's still leveling the same criticisms. Uh, he he he's leveling the same criticisms against modernity as he would in revolt. And his problem is that fascism is ultimately a product of modernity, and he wants to return to an ancient traditional state. So all of his criticisms of fascism come from that perspective whereas like a liberal uh, like my liberal criticisms of fascism came from how fascism operates uh, his are from how fascism is constituted and so the and uh, i mean there's some overlap there as well that we'll get into but um but yeah he, he just has a totally different direction from which to criticize fascism from the right as the title yeah, yeah literally and from that- but the very furthest right. Oh, yes. And that was one of the most interesting things about this book for me was that it presented a perspective on fascism that is completely alien to anything that you would expect from Mm. anyone who isn't really within Evola's mindset, Mm. which is rarer and rarer to find these days because Evola himself came from an aristocratic background. Mm. So he had a very particular worldview that he was approaching it from. So his criticisms of fascism both come into it from... He didn't like the totalitarian nature of the system. He didn't like it. It was all uh, he. This outside of this particular work, he has an essay that's collected in another um, collection of the works where he complains about the fact that as part of the fascist party, you had to have an identity card, which is almost a Peter Hitchens kind of complaint about it, which I completely agree with. Yeah. I hate um, 
But it wasn't just the totalitarian aspect. Like you say, it was the democratic and mass state aspect of it, which reminds... It's the modernist aspects of it. Yeah. It's a modernist philosophy. Yes. Certainly, having read Nietzsche recently, Beyond Good and Evil, it reminded me of Nietzsche's complaints of the mass man and the democratic herd, which was that it seems to take society, which should be hierarchical and should be ordered, and levels it all down to to the lowest common denominator through the democratic process. Yes. Um... Obviously, fascism wasn't explicitly democratic, uh, but it did have democratic elements. And the the issue that he has is that its substratum is the liberal state. And so it pays lip service to all of that. And I don't even know if you'd call it lip service. I mean, there's one particular part where he says that uh, Mussolini uh, is arguing that actually the right are the real Democrats, because (laughs) fascism includes every person in society and therefore... Uh, the, the state is involved in every aspect of every person's uh, life, and therefore that's true democracy. And of course, Avola's like, but I'm not in favor of any kind of democracy. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a raging elitist, and this mass man movement of fascism, uh, I despise on the basis that it's mediocre, plebeian, it's a downward force. Uh, this is not oriented upwards, as he would uh, complain. Yes, I can get a quote here. If you'd like to go through it. So he says that uh, we should mention the fact that the conception of the fascist party was affected by its origins, that is, by the intrinsic solidarity of the concept of a party with the democratic idea, through the lack of a rigorously qualitative and selective criterion. Even after the conquest of power, the fascist party was committed to being a mass party. It opened itself up instead of purifying itself, instead of making membership in the party appear a difficult privilege, the regime practically imposed it on everyone. Who is there who yesterday did not have the card, which is referring to that identity card I mentioned a moment ago? And in addition, who could allow himself to not have it if he wanted to perform certain activities? Hence the fatal consequence of countless superficial adherents who were conformist or opportunistic with effects that were immediately manifest at the moment of crisis. A retrospective counterproof was constituted by quite a few of yesterday's fascists not just private citizens, but writers and intellectuals who afterward changed their colours, trying to prove, uh, trying to put the past in the shadow and, de- uh, and uh, denying it or declaring that they were at the time cynically in bad faith. The conception of party in communism and national socialism that was maintained also in those movements had instead a rather more exclusive and selective character. In fascism, on the other hand, the idea of the mass party prevailed, prejudicing the positive function that the party could eventually have continued to have. From our point of view, positive outcome in conjunctions of this kind, the positive counterpart of the revolutionary concept of sole party in a normalized and integrated institutional context should instead be thought of in terms of a type of order, the backbone of the state, participating to a certain degree in the authority and dignity that gathers, indivisible at the top of the state. So he's essentially saying that the state should, in a sense, exclude all of the people of lower orders and not open itself up, as far as I can tell, not open itself up to the kind of rabble that Evola looked down upon as not being fit for political action, almost in an Aristotelian sense, going back to how Aristotle in the politics conceptualized the idea of a citizen, similar to Mm. Cicero as well, being the higher order of society that doesn't have to take part in manual labor and Mm. such things that could sully the political spirit within him. Uh, Whereas fascism itself actually did within the party, even though it was a one-party state, opened it up to the point where you can have anybody come in, which he sees as 
being a very, very poor, uh, poor decision. You could argue well, it's, that it's an innovating force. It, it, it is anti-meritorious. Um, it, it makes the state plebeian, low class, and so it reduces everything to the lowest common denominator, uh, rather than and ra- rather than. So, in Evola's worldview, um, in fact, let's let's take a step back because yes, like Evola has actually quite a clear-eyed view of fascism. Because unlike, uh, he, he, in fact, he begins complaining that, um, the problem with fascism is essentially been mythologized. And he is actually trying to demythologize fascism and have quite, um, a sober look at what it is and what it isn't and what it did right and from his perspective and what it did wrong. And of course, he ends up saying, well, look, it did a lot more wrong than right. Um, and so he, he, um, to, to understand his critique of fascism, You've got to understand what it is he's aiming for. And so you have to understand his metaphysics laid out in revolt, right? So basically, he, he, he feels that the, that human civilization can be split fundamentally into two kinds, which are what he describes as solar civilizations and lunar civilizations. Uh, these are, uh, poles, as in a, a, an axis around which the civilization turns. And a solar civilization is oriented upwards to the transcendent. And a lunar civilization is oriented downwards to the telluric, which means of the earth. I think he, he discusses some, a similar idea in this, except using different terms. I think he uses anagonic and ta- catagogic yeah. at and one point to essentially mean the same thing. Yeah. And so the, the, the thing that Evola doesn't despise fascism and he doesn't worship fascism. And so he isn't inhibited by other contemporary criticisms, uh, he isn't inhibited by his emotions on fascism, ironically, um, and, he, and can give this, this level-headed view of what he thinks from the traditionist point of view, fascism did right and what it did wrong. Right? Because the, the problem that the, the liberal state has with fascism, primarily, is that it is essentially an agreement on what the state, how it should be constituted, and it is a misbehavior of the state. And so the reason the liberal mind is constantly haunted and the socialist mind is constantly haunted by fascism is because they agree that all of the things that the fascists used should be there is the purpose for which they should be used. And so if you, t- if you are, as a liberal or socialist, do X, then that's okay because that's a particularly prescribed band of um, things that you're allowed to do. But if you do something else, then, oh, no, that's, that's fascism. Uh, and so there's this, it's a perennial boogeyman for the, for the liberal and the socialist is the, the, the fascist will do things that are outside of the orthodoxy of the other two ideologies. Whereas the socialists, of course, do everything the fascists do. This lie about it. This lie that they have to be totalitarian. Well, yes. And to, to, to include be... elements of what you were discussing there as well, they have those same totalitarian elements, but they are yeah. aimed in a different direction for different goals. Yeah. But the, I don't know if I'd say it was a different direction. They would say that they have to do it because of their intent. They've got different intents. Um, but they still go in the same direction. They still end up with the same consequence. The socialist just has to lie to themselves why they're doing it, right? The fascist is just basically honest about it. Um, but the point is, the, the, this, this leads Evola to be able to say, look, there are a couple of things about fascism I actually like, and then we're right. And, uh, he actually, um, gives us, uh, a, a me- literally a d- direct description. The merit of fascism was to have revived in Italy the idea of a state, uh, of the state, and to have created the basis for an active government 
by affirming the pure principle of authority and political sovereignty. And that's pretty much where it ends, actually. The, and the other, the other major thing is that it shifts the pole from the lunar pole of democratic uh, democracy, liberal democracy, to the solar pole of authority and hierarchy, right? So it, the, the civilization revolves around the base and the plebeian under the lunar, the mass man of the lunar order, to the elite hierarchical aristocratic man in the solar order, right? where excellence can become a natural part of life, unlike um, utilitarianism, which is the natural part of the lunar order. And so these are the, the two things. It creates a... a a legitimate, well, not no, it's not even a legitimate authority, um, but it creates the basis, as he says, for for proper authority and the, the idea of a, a legitimate state, but fails to uphold this. And don't know what that was. He's here with us right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're here with us, Vola, not twice. And it, was that a no? Um, and and it um, it shifts the axis towards uh, trying to look upwards. But the problem is fascism, so constituted, can't fulfill any of these goals. And it doesn't really understand itself, and it's very confused. Um, and that's, that's. I mean, he, he basically points out it's not really very much different to communism and national socialism. Uh, didn't have, But unlike them, it didn't have a proper doctrine of revolution that preceded its own action. And so it had many discordant ideological tendencies. That well, it couldn't overcome. At one point, he explicitly states that action came before doctrine. Yeah, absolutely. Because given the historical circumstances that fascism arose in, it was very much military men get back from the war, see communists trying to destroy their country, and then try to do something about that. And then yeah. from that point onwards, essentially make it up as they go along. And yeah, you which have, is what Mussolini did. Yeah, and you have someone like Giovanni Gentile in the background trying to create a doctrine surrounding post it. Post-hoc rationalising. Yeah, post-hoc rationalising. But within Giovanni Gentile's conception, he did have a lot of Marxist priors, as I understand so did Mussolini. it. Mussolini. Uh, but Giovanni Gentile, being that he wasn't directly in the seat of power, it seems, yeah. stuck much more closely to those priors, and uh, Evola actually is quite critical of him at Apparently, certain points in this. Gentili was one of Europe's leading Hegelians. Yes, that's I've heard that a number of times, yeah. but Evola does not seem particularly happy with him, and in fact dismisses <laughs> Gentili, a lot of Gentile's theorising as utter nonsense yeah. at certain points. Uh, to, to move back onto one of the points that you brought up about the, different, the, the way that fascism is used as a boogeyman, it's quite interesting because, once again, Evola does point out that there are positive aspects to the prescriptions that fascism was trying to put forward that he saw as being almost a return to the kinds of more hierarchical um, aristocratic states that he, that he preferred. Mm. Obviously, it did not completely transform it, and certainly he completely dismisses at certain points the Salo Republic that happened after, Gen mm. after Mussolini returned to power as basically being left-wing trade unionist nonsense. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem ultimately that Evola has is that it's a modernist state with a, a traditionalist aesthetic yeah, that he, doesn't fulfil any of the promises it's trying to make. He explicitly, once again, uh, uh, disavows the totalitarian aspect of it. Yeah, we can get into that. Um, yeah, because he, he actually puts quite a succinct... At, at the end, in the final chapter, he goes through quite an extensive... Review of the kind of state that he, he would, would want, yeah. that he would want. I do enjoy that part of it at the end here, and this ties into quite a few other people uh, who I've been reading recently as well. He says, 
it will be necessary to take a resolute stance against the aberrant system of indiscriminate universal suffrage and one man, one vote, which now includes the female sex. The formula of politicizing the masses should be rejected. The majority of a healthy and ordered nation should not be involved in politics. The fascist trinity, authority, order, and justice retains its unshaken validity for the true state. So that is something that he can appreciate, even though it seems that within that conception of authority, order, and justice, it's still in trying to include the entirety of the population as one organic mass in the mass state did not live up to that. Well, the, 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 problem, the problem with fascism is that Giovanni Gentili literally coined the term the person is political, as in it makes everything and everyone political, rather than narrowing politics to the aristocratic elite. That's and certainly that's, his critique. That's the kind of world that we live in in the West currently, where yeah. every single issue, no matter yeah. what it is, has to be politicised. And this is something that Schmidt spoke about as well in the concept of the political and dis, uh, was very disappointed with the modern world that he was living in as well, was the idea of what he referred to as the total state, mm. wherein the concept of the political, as he put it forward, was the friend-enemy distinction, but that would should only be within a political context. But by engulfing the entirety of social life, it puts everyone at odds at all times in yeah. every aspect of society. Uh, whereas he seemed to also be looking at it from... Um, in a more old-fashioned aristocratic sense, the political, the concept of the political, the friend-enemy distinction should only exist on the political strata. Mm. Everybody else should basically be able to get, a, um, get along with one another mm. and get on with what they're supposed to be doing within society. And in modern democracy, you can see that, you know, it's like a third to 40, almost 50% of people just aren't interested in politics. And I don't think that they should be. And I think that mm. forcing them into the position where they have to take a stand on every little aspect of their lives is overwhelmingly negative. Well, you, you can see that they don't. They just don't turn out to vote in elections. I mean, local elections, like in, the national election gets like a 60 to 70% turnout. So still a third of the population just don't care. And then you get to sort of more local elections where it's literally like 30% of people in Wales vote for the Welsh Assembly, 35%. So it's only a third of people who are even, you know, everyone there can vote, but they just don't. And then you get to council elections. I wonder what the percentage of turnout in council elections is. Oh, it's very, very it's, low. It's not very good. And so people just are not interested in actually engaging with politics. I think there's something to this. I absolutely agree because it, there's one thing that politics is engulfing all of life. But then there's also, as he talks about, the lower nature of the orders hmm. that politics aspires to now. All that anybody talks about within politics is. GDP, economic concerns, things that people, they don't really get people out of bed and going, oh boy, I can't wait to improve my GDP per capita this morning. That's not the sort of thing that organizes people. Whereas yeah. he talks positively about the use of myth, which is one of the things that he does say at least fascism was trying to do in creating yeah. a form, yeah. of national, uh, form of national myth. And once again, everything that he seems to take as being a positive within fascism is essentially, as you say, taking from what came before and yes, worked. the aesthetic of prior Yeah, taking the aesthetic of traditionalism and putting, overlaying it over the new mass state, yes. which is where everything goes wrong. Yeah. But I do, I do like... Well, before you go on, I, I've got a couple of points. Of course. Exactly exemplified from chapter four. Um, is it literally, it's just the positive view of the state 
that fascism gets right in his opinion. Like any fa- fascism's talk of anything transcendental is completely hollow and is completely empty because fascism itself is based on the rational liberal state, which is purely material. It's a completely materialist thing. So anything political is deprived of any spiritual dimensions. One of the things in Revolt that he goes on about extensively is the sacral nature of the kingship. Now, we actually have this in Britain. Mm. Like Britain is actually... And we saw it at the coronation. Exactly. We, we actually have this in Britain. Like, And actually, the British traditional state is kind of what Evola is asking for. I'm so he never really uh, like nothing I've read explicitly mentions it. For some reason, doesn't want to bring up England, but uh, it's, I, I think some of the Continentals they don't like bringing up it. The, 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 but we have okay. everything that he's asking. For. <laughs> we genuinely do. You know, we, we do but still he, have a lot of problems. Over yeah, yeah, of that. course we do. But like his 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 problem, I would say. I mean, one of the problems he would have with the monarchy is that the monarchy isn't really in charge. He's not really doing anything. But theoretically, he is, and we we have like a really a. There, there is a, a spiritual aspect to the kingship, which is what he wants, because that's what they had in ancient times, obviously. Um, and obviously fascism doesn't have that, and so it reduces everything to the material and deprives the political of its spiritual, spiritual dimension, meaning that it is only based on power. It is not based on faith now. Uh, so because it's got no transcendental basis, it can never achieve what it wants to achieve because it doesn't know how. It's pro- improperly constituted. I mean, he says that the, the nationalist movements are based on the principles of 1789, as in the French Revolution, and this informs everything that they do. Um, he says, as, and this leads him on to the dangers of totalitarianism, because the totalitarian state is not um, a traditional state. It's, a, it's an artificial, rationalistic construct that relies on technology to be what it is. You can't have a totalitarian state in the pre-modern era because the technology simply wasn't there for it. You couldn't know everything that was going on. And so it was just impossible. And in contrast to the totalitarian state, he's got on page 42 in chapter 4, he says, the traditional state is organic but not totalitarian. It's differentiated and articulated and emits zones of partial autonomy. It coordinates forces and causes them to participate in a superior unity while recognizing their liberty. Exactly because it is strong, it does not need to resort to mechanical centralizing. Well, that's 19th century Britain. That's what he's talking about there. All of the pieces are working in concert with one another. They all owe loyalty to one another. They'll feel like they belong together. But you don't have totalizing authority in the central state because you don't need totalizing authority in the central state. The, 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 the civilization agrees that that is how... That, of course we want the government to be there because we need to have our borders protected. We need to maintain an army and stuff like this. But the state is then, well, I don't need to go and interfere with that person's life because why would I need to? And so you end up getting the kind of, as he, as he says, the sort of, um, uh, sort of zones of autonomy uh, that have not only a superior unity, but also their own individual liberty. And his model for this was the Holy Roman Empire, uh, the, you know, the, the collection of German states that did have a remarkable amount of liberty in their own time. And Britain is very much cut from that sort of cloth. Where it's, you know, there was no, you wouldn't have called Britain a tyrannical state. And I mean, Edmund Burke was like, what are you talking about? I'm not in a free country. Of course I'm in a free country. Because from his point of view, it was a free country. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.